Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Adobe. At CDW, we get your organization can be demanding. We know you're in there. I know. The marketing team's outside my office. They want their Adobe update now. With Adobe's value incentive plan, deployed by the experts at CDW, you can quickly and easily manage software subscriptions for the whole team. On Acrobat and Creative Cloud? All included. Cool. Guys, I'm coming out. Don't hurt me. For a satisfied digital workforce, you need Adobe and IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash adobe. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Uh, today, I'm in Austin, and I, here, here with me is Professor of Psychology, James W. Pennebaker. Thank you, James, for joining me. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a very exciting interview. He is uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, today is, uh, is his book, the Secret Life of Pronouns, which I have been um, uh, reading. I, I just confirmed this interview uh, last week, and I, I've been trying to read the book as fast as I possibly could, and uh, I wish I was a quicker reader, but it is incredibly fascinating um, so far. And uh, <laughs> uh, 
So hopefully you don't just blow it right at the end. Because now, right now... It, it actually gets better. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe yeah. you'll be able to tell me a little bit about... Uh, no. You'll get to spoil it a little <laughs> bit for me. Um, so, so can you talk just a, a little bit about how you, um, how, how you came up with the idea for this? How, how you got started in um, analyzing and, and just kind of the basic concepts about how you got started in analyzing all these all these little words that no one else uh, seems to pay much attention to. Well, it's important to appreciate that. I never in a million years thought I'd be studying pronouns. My God, <laughs> how, how sad would that have been if I had... Uh, Since you, know. you were six years old, that's, <laughs> that's all right. you ever wanted to do, <laughs> that's right. study pronouns. Exactly. No, I was... Uh, I started uh, college figuring I'd be a lawyer or something, and was seduced into psychology kind of midway in my college career and became fascinated by social psychology. And over the years, I, I did a number of earlier uh, other projects, and the primary one was looking at how people cope with traumatic experience and discovered that if you ask people to write about traumatic experience for as little as three or four times a day, three or four times over three or four days, uh, they, their health improved. And I became fascinated. What is it about writing that makes such a difference? And this led me to look at what people wrote. And it turns out it's really complicated to analyze what people are actually saying. And I got you know, judges, clinicians, and others to read what people had written to get a sense of what, why they might be improving. Again, it was just too complicated. And then it occurred to me, wouldn't it be interesting to analyze, to, to analyze their writing with a computer program? So I went trying to find a computer program that could do that, and at the time, this was in the early 90s, there, there wasn't one available. I had taken a little programming in college, and I had a, a graduate student who had had experience in programming. And so the two of us, Martha Francis was the graduate student, uh, started to build a computer program. And the computer program was called, we later called it Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count, L-I-W-C, which we pronounce Luke, and, and I know it doesn't sound look like Luke, but it is. And the Luke, easier to remember. It's easier to remember. <laughs> and what this computer program did was to go through and just analyze language, and it would look for words that were associated with positive emotions and negative emotions. And once you start to build the program, you figure, well, it's just as easy to count words that measure emotions as it is other dimensions. So among other things is we counted dimensions that we knew about pronouns, like first person singular pronouns, second person, and so forth. And then as long as we're doing that, there, we found lists of prepositions and, uh, and other dimensions. Well, to make a long story short, we discovered that this computerized analysis of text did a really good job at identifying kind of the fingerprints of people's of who people were and initially I did what many other people do I looked at the emotion words figuring that's the most important thing but then I quickly learned that wasn't really the important part what was more interesting were these words that, that are really boring such as pronouns who cares about pronouns or articles a n and b or prepositions and so forth and it turned out that these small words 
told us about people's personality. It told us if they were sociable or not, if they were smart or not, if they were high status or low status, if they were telling the truth, if they were lying. It was these little words as opposed to emotion words, as opposed to big words that we normally think about. It was these little words that were making the difference. Hmm. Um, it's, that's really fascinating to me because I've always, as a stand-up comic, I'm basically paid to bear my soul on stage, which involves me doing a lot of writing about the you know darker things and and um, and problems in my life and and I have noticed um, over the years that some as I was just telling you, I just released an album. Uh, well, I don't know when this podcast is being released, but as of recording this, I just released an album um, this this week uh about breaking both of my my feet so i had this big tragedy in my life and i wrote and i wrote i had months of i went through some depression and everything but i do feel like the writing helped and i also remember i used to i used to be a very heavy drinker and anytime i would have a really really horrible hangover and i would be writing i would get some of my best material out of it, and it would also make me feel better. Very not, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just yeah. hungover, but just like kind of, you know, thinking about regrets and, mm -hmm. and falling into depression and everything. Right, and this is kind of, so this is a lot of the earlier research that I did, which is when we're in this state where we are being self-reflective and thoughtful, that's where I think we start putting things together, and it really is it truly is beneficial. It, it's associated with improvements in immune function. People sleep better afterwards. You're able to get past through, past, past or through upsetting experiences in ways that we don't do it unless we stop and self-reflect in some way. And I think that's the power of this writing. Mm. And that, that the writing work is related to the language work, but not they're almost separate topics. So the right. writing work is really powerful, I think, in and of itself. And how we write makes a big difference. So you can imagine, it's interesting that you said after a drinking bout and you're in, in the throes of a hangover. I think a hangover draws attention to yourself. Mm. Uh, if you're in pain, for example, you use the word I more. And it's very interesting, the word I is unlike what most of us believe. Most of us think that people who use I are arrogant, self-important, highly confident. In fact, it's just the opposite. People who are arrogant and confident uh, don't use I much. They are not, they're not self-focused. Self, we are self-focused when we're depressed, when we're thoughtful, when we're introspective. Those, that's, that, those are markers of I. Hmm. And when we're working through things, and I guarantee you, if you go back and you look at your writing during these these uh, hang, post hangover or, or hangover times or important changes in your life, you were probably using the word "I" at incredibly high rates because you're focusing on yourself. You're asking yourself, "Why am I doing this? Why have I done this? What should I be doing?" and so forth. And all of these are very much self focused. Yeah, I can't wait to um, look back through. I, I did I did analyze my Twitter account, but you have um, uh, you have this amazing 
program. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's uh, analyzewords.com. Analyzewords.com, where I know every listener is going to jump on and do this immediately. You can enter any Twitter handle, and it will go back and uh, and find... Um, it, it, it doesn't go back too it does, far. It doesn't go back too far. It goes back to the last hundred... I forget how many words. Like a thousand words. I think or a something thousand like words that. or something. Yeah. Um, and, and it will tell you all these all these um, various dimensions. Let me see if I can uh, find. I, I sent myself the screenshot. I'm going to try to pull up here of my Twitter account from the last um, thousand words or so. Um, and sorry, I, sorry, I don't mean to derail you. I just think that people are. This is going to grab people's attention. Um, so I, in my last thousand words, uh, which I, I wish I wish I could pick segments from mm -hmm. different times, because that's why I, uh, I was going to say is I, I wish that I had a period like three or four weeks ago where I kind of got some bad news and went through a rough few days, and I was writing a lot during those days, mm -hmm. and I would love to go back and, and uh, look at my writing. So that's something that listeners can be mindful of when they're writing but i have so i have average and upbeat low and worried i'm i'm a very laid back not a very worried person i think most people would agree with that high and angry eh, i could see that i guess average and and depressed well that that seems uh, i'm happy that's just average um plugged in i'm high personable average arrogant i'm low so take that go. everybody Hey, right. who's, who's the lowest and maybe the least arrogant guy out there? <laughs> um, uh, average in in spacey Valley Girl. Can you describe that for the listeners a, a little bit? A person who uses Valley Girl language uses the word like a lot. You know, I mean, uh, uh, lots of exclamation points, um, a, a lot of verbal fry. So words that so s o o o o o o o o and so forth. Right, right. I I feel like I go through periods where I'll catch myself like, "Will you stop saying like?" I just said it just before that. Right. That's interesting. And then I'm average and analytic, which I'm surprised by. I would have thought I would have been higher. I'm like a mathematical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem is, is this is Twitter, right? You know, and it's hard to be deeply analytic on Twitter. And some people are. I mean, so you know, if you look at a number of people who have science tweets, they are often, you know, people are working to be serious. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, that makes sense then. I'm making silly jokes. Um, sensory, average, and in the moment, um, average. How, how are you measuring in the moment? Primarily present tense, present tense verbs. Oh, so you're right now in the here and now. So you're not thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or what happened yesterday. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, so I, I just, not to derail you, let's, so let's get back to this, this I and you and, and uh, these, um, as kind of this indicator of, of possible um, depression or, or low status and thinking right, about right. yourself a lot. So it might be helpful just to stand back for just a second to think about all the different types of words we have available to us. So... I actually stumbled on this discovery about the, what these small words do 
I was reading a book by a guy by the name of George Miller, and the book was called The Science of Words. It was a couple of years after it came out. And in the book, he is making this distinction between what are called content words, and content words are kind of the content of speech. These are just like words like nouns or regular verbs or adjectives or most uh, adverbs. They're words like uh, chair, table, sit, uh, eat, run, things like that. Uh, and then the, the other words in our vocabulary are called function words. Now, function words are these, they are kind of these filler words. So we could, in our conversation right now, I could say, uh, we're sitting here uh, talking into a microphone. Okay, now there are content words, uh, sitting, talking, microphone. And all the rest are function words. We are here in A. Now, what's interesting is is the first group, sitting, talking, microphone, if that's all we knew uh, and we were trying to analyze what was going on, we'd do a pretty good job. However, if we just had access to those other words, we are here uh, in the or whatever, no one would have any idea what that refers to. However, these words, we are, are interesting because they're telling us something about the speaker. They're saying something about the speaker's relationship to other people in the room, the speaker's relationship to the topic, the speaker's relationship to the audience. Mm -hmm. So, if you were... Imagine this. Imagine you have a, a note that you find on the ground. Um, uh, I'm not here. I'll be back in a minute. That, on one level, makes a lot of sense, but another level, it makes no sense at all because all of those words are function words. I'm not here. I. Who is I? Am. Am implies present tense. When was it written? Not here. Where is here? Is this is this where the note was intended to be? All of those words only have meaning for the speaker and the listener, the writer and the presumed target, at a particular time, at a particular location. And even if you found the note, took it back to the person who wrote the note in a year from now, they might look at it and say, I have no idea what I was referring to. Now, what's hmm. interesting is, is in English, and virtually all languages, 99%, probably more than that, of the words we know are content words. However this small number of function words that we have, and there's probably only about 200 common ones, they account for about 60% of the words we use. Pick up any, you know, any uh, piece of paper or, or look at your screen at anything and count the number of these small function words. They're the majority of words. And they're almost invisible to us on a conscious level. This is if I, any time I have like some typo or something in a tweet or whatever else it's often <laughs> one of these that, one of these that, function words that i just my brain assumes is already in there and that's right and you can't even hear them so if you're out there in radio land and you're listening to this and you think i i know i'm going to count up the number of articles a n and v these two people say well you can start paying attention to that and in the next uh, minute or two you can say yeah there's one there's one there's one but you're going to find within about uh, a minute it's an impossible task. It is so painful. Our, and if you really are good at it, you won't be able to hear what we're saying. But 
our brain is constantly processing these. And if if one of these articles is off, when the, when we say a a instead of the, the difference between a and the is important because the means we both we all know what's being referred to as opposed to a, which is means this is a new noun coming up. Mm. Our brain is able to process process all of this at incredibly high rates and here's the other interesting thing these function words are processed in the brain differently than most content words and they are where they are processed are in locations in the brain uh, broca's area is one place that we know is associated with personality and social skills in other words it requires social skills to use these these function words well and and the the function words and the content words those are coming from uh, possibly two different regions of, right. of the brain right, when, right. and so if someone has a stroke in a various area they can they can uh lose i mean in, if you in reading neuroscience you'll see a lot about the uh, Broca's area mm-hmm. um in in like popular neuroscience books but i haven't um and, and the various problems when when that goes wrong but i i have what's the other area what's it's the Ver- area Wernicke's area are, oh, these, yeah, are these, these are kind oh, of the yeah, two, you'll hear that. yeah these are these are two kind of popular areas right. and of course this is an oversimplification but brain damage say to the frontal lobe especially in the language area what will often happen is the person can still use nouns and regular verbs, but they talk in this really slow, painful way. So sitting, uh, talking, microphone. <clears throat> Whereas a person who has an intact frontal lobe but damage to Wernicke's area, they talk in a really normal way. <clears throat> uh, we're at uh, here um, in uh, the da-da-da-da. And so... I would maintain eye contact. I'd be socially connected. But what's so interesting about it is uh, I wouldn't be saying anything. Right. That's interesting. And and kind of the the reverse of that without a stroke is sort of with uh, like someone with broken English or or when you're learning a new language. That's um, right. And and it's these function words that are the hardest to, to master. <clears throat> That's how you can tell someone's a native English speaker. Do they mess up function words? It, isn't it ironic? There's 180 of them, <clears throat> but they are the hardest to master. And when I, I speak lousy Spanish and, you know, I, I'm trying to get across content and these function words, they're impossible. And I make a trillion errors, but that's the least of my problems. My poor poor listeners, I'm just hoping they get the nouns and regular verbs. Yeah, I just know like bendejo or, yeah, or, yeah, so, yeah. or, some, <laughs> or something like that. And I, I, the, the soy and the, mm-hmm. like I get all, all mixed around any uh, trying to think back to my seventh grade education in Spanish. Um, do you think that so so if these if these function words um, are kind of uh, telling of someone's personality and style, do you think uh, so? Uh, would you have a harder time then trying to discern a foreigner's um, personality if if you were if you were taking like a transcript of their of their dialogue? And, because you would understand what they were saying. They're still using these. Uh, you know, building basketball, you know, whatever the nouns are. Exactly, but here's here's the wonderful thing. Me as a listener, 
I'm I'm not worth worth a damn. I I can't tell if you're using a high rate of I words. I can't tell if you're mm. using a high high rate of articles. You know, there's that one person out there in in Radio Land who's actually been counting how often we use the word a or the. But for the rest of us, it's just not doable. You need a computer to do it. Can I do it with another language? Sure. Give me a computer and give me a transcript, and I can I can tell you their personality reasonably well. So our personality, our social connections, all of these are linked to function word use. Hmm. And uh, the other thing kind of on the same topic that I thought was really interesting was some of the cultural differences in, um, in the use of function words and the variety of the ki- kinds of function mm-hmm. words. Yeah, and so one of the interesting things about function words is they also differ by culture, and they actually tell you something about the culture. So, for example, English does not have a formal and informal you. So, uh, whereas if you've learned Spanish or German or many other languages, there are differences. There's the f- informal you, to, versus the formal usted. And again, most languages have this. And actually, in English, we used to have a thou versus you. But if this is something that's important in a culture, it also tells us that relative status is very important. Mm. And so you begin to look at a language, and by looking at these function words, you start to get a sense of what things are important. So, for example, in uh, Japanese and Korean, their language, their verbs, and, uh, and to some degree even nouns, have additions to them that would be like function words that conveys relative status. So in Japanese, it would be impossible to say, oh, I saw Sean yesterday talking to Fred. In what I've just said, you have no idea what my relationship is with Sean or Sean's relationship with Fred. In Japanese, to be able to utter that sentence, you have to know who has the relative status to each other. Hmm. And this is just the nature of the language, which means the language is providing a window by which to understand relationships. Now, I should also tell you, in English... We also have status markers, but Mister or, some, or well, something no, it's like e- that. it's even more subtle than that. <laughs> no. Yes, we do. So we do I, have. I the make formal. people call me Mister Comedian <laughs> yeah. just so they know what, I prefer, what a big deal I am. I prefer Doctor Comedian myself. <laughs> Doctor Comedian. <laughs> but actually, in an interaction, a one-on-one interaction with a, another person with a computer. I can do very well at telling who the relative status is of two people. If I get a transcript of two people meeting on the street, I can tell you who's the higher status. And the way that I can do it is look to see who uses the word I more. Now, That's so fascinating. You would think that I... Well, the person who's using I more is higher status. I am very important. Exactly. (laughs) Except that's not right. No one talks like that. Exactly. And the person who's higher status actually uses the word I less. And the lower status person uses the word I more. And, in fact, 
Uh, we, I Wait, sh- what about what about uh, people who talk about themselves in the third person? Now, do, do I, <laughs> Shane does that from time to time. <laughs> well, uh, that's a, that's a very Shane thinks it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, Shane, you know, Shane, uh, Shane's kind of messed up. And, this, <laughs> and, and I'm fascinated by people who do this, and I think it's people are kind of psychologically distancing themselves when they do that. Oh, so that, you know, there's kind of a dis- emotional distancing. Huh. I words. So here's something that you can do. Go look at your emails. And all of us will correspond with people where you are the higher status person and also where you are the lower status person. And when I started to do this research, I saw these differences in I and I thought that can't be true. And certainly not for me. So I go and I look my emails to undergraduates back and forth, and an undergraduate student will write me, Dear Dr. Pennebaker, I am so-and-so, and I was wondering if I could come by and talk to you because I'm thinking about so-and-so. And I'll write back to the student. Dear student, thank you so much for your email. Uh, tomorrow might be a good time. How about around 4? Notice the undergraduate's using I all the time. I don't use it at all. Oh, man. And then I write to the dean. Dear Dean, I'm Jamie Pennebaker, and I was just telling you, I just wanted to know if I could come by and talk to you because I have some ideas. And the dean will say, Jamie, thank you so much for your email. Uh, tomorrow's a possibility. Uh, contact my secretary for something like that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like cringing now because <laughs> I sent you this very long-winded email to get you on, and you, you knew instantly what my status no, was. No, I didn't. Were you able to discern any, any information? Well, see, that's, again, it gets to this issue. I have no idea what your email is. Unless said. you run it through a computer. Exactly. I see. I, I see. just, you know, life's too short. I don't. Right, right, I, right. I, I suppose I could. You mean you haven't made your whole life all about me ever <laughs> <Yeah>. since? <laughs> ever I'm, since I'm, ever. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> okay. uh, but, but go on. Uh, so, but what this tells us is that words like I are not wildly different than Japanese. So historically, linguists have kind of chuckled, saying, oh, those crazy Japanese, their status everywhere in their language, which there is. We do that to some degree here, and actually all cultures do that. And it turns out, and this goes to your interest in evolutionary psychology, one of the most important things across all cultures is the establishment of status. Status helps a society run so that people know what the hierarchy is. And with this, the, the use of the word I is conveying this in an incredibly subtle way. Hmm. Um, I had a question about that very thing, and it's killing me because I can't think of it right now. Um, oh, man. Um, well, we might have to edit this part <laughs> out. Uh, go on. Uh, now, another th- thing. I, it turns out I is pretty magical. It, it was about it, there. There's something else with oh, um, this is what it was. It was the 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 possible the the evolution of the different cultures. The difference between like collective cultures and cultures where there's the individual is the individualistic it. versus collective. My personal bias is that that distinction is overblown. Yeah, I mean, it was just like two sentences in your book. I don't mean to pick that up, but it just struck me as something interesting. So I became quite interested in this years ago um, because 
it, and I was particularly interested in Japan versus the United States because of another project I was doing. And here was the question. It is generally agreed that Japan is more collectivist than is, say, the United States on various measures that uh, social scientists have had in the past, you, by and large questionnaires, self-reports. If that's the case, you might think that if you read Japanese literature, they would use the word we at much higher rates, and Americans would use I at much higher rates. Well, you can already guess that this is, this is going to end badly. Uh, so what, in working with a group in Japan, and also with just getting a, a lot of uh, books here, what, what my students and I did was to essentially analyze the top-selling uh, novels in English and J Japanese going back from about 1950 to about t uh, 2000. And what we found was, across the board, uh, Japanese actually used the word I a little bit more than Americans. Hmm. And Americans use we more than Japanese. Now, this is kind of interesting because, and I also started to get really seriously into Japanese literature. And what's interesting is you read the, the stories, and if you got rid of all the names and the foods in them and, and replaced them with American names and American foods and American places, you couldn't tell the difference if this was a Japanese story or an American story. In all cases, they are dealing with conflicts between people, between people within your group and people in other groups. They're, it's all, it, they're all the same human conflicts, and there's not some global sense when you when you read Japanese literature of uh, a group of people who are all walking around who can't pull their identity out of their own culture. It's a preposterous kind of idea. Hmm. And just going back real quick, since uh, we've we've still been talking about the eyes and the and the use, which is important, and, and we talked about. Um, Jumping back to when you were talking about um, in writing about tragedy or whatever it might be when, when people start talking about I, um, which I would like to maybe talk about uh, your work with 9-11 and, mm -hmm. and the blogs. I found that so fascinating. But you, you mentioned that uh, another component of, of that... Um, uh, therapeutic effect uh, seems to be maybe switching back and forth or or you can kind of see growth right from starting with i and and working toward that's using right. you that's right so it's, the issue here is and this is actually the very first question i was asking in the in the language analysis is is there a healthy way to write in other words if we get a hundred people to write about their you know, a deeply disturbing experience in their lives. What we'll find is maybe half the people will show some kind of health benefit to that. And, you know, the rest, by and large, won't. Mm -hmm. And now it's... Now, uh, and this is called, like, aversion writing? And no, expressive writing. Oh, expressive. Okay. Expressive writing. And what you find with expressive writing is... Uh, most people say it's beneficial, but in terms of, obje of objective outcomes, immune function changes health improvements, uh, improvements in cognitive functioning. Not every, it, it, you know, it's, it has a modest effect. Well, when you go through and pick out who benefits versus who doesn't, 
the people who benefit the most tend to change in their writing. In other words, one thing is, is they change in their perspectives. They flip back and forth between using I words a lot, saying this happened and I'm feeling this and I'm wondering if I should do this and I think and so forth, to words like he, she, they, we, you, where people are making references to other people. So in this experience, I could tell it really hurt so-and-so and she was feeling such and such because I think this was going on with her boyfriend or whatever. A more objective kind of? Very possibly. And the people who are benefiting are kind of flipping back and forth between this more I perspective into some other perspective. And I think of this as perspective switching. And it's not unlike what happens in therapy. If, imagine you go into therapy because you're having trouble with your relationship. If you come in the first day and the therapist says, so why are you here? Well, I'm here because I'm having problems with my spouse. And, you know, she does this, she does that, she does this. She, I can't believe she does this, she does that. And a, a good therapist at some point is going to say, stop just a second. What about you? What are you feeling? What's going on inside you? And you can imagine my going to see a therapist and the therapist says, well, tell me the problems with the relationship. Well, I feel this and I'm wondering about this and I feel hurt about this and I'm thinking this. At some point, the therapist can say, quiet. What about your, what about your spouse? What, what's going on with her? What, what's her perspective on this? In other words, the therapist is sometimes playing this role of forcing perspective switch. But the people who are benefiting tend to do this on their own. Seeing things from just as many different angles as that's possible. E that's exactly mm -hmm. right. And I think seeing things from different angles also helps you to, it, it's a marker that you're standing back a little bit. And the ability to stand back for any emotional upheaval is really, really critical. It's a secret to your profession. It's a secret to humor. You cannot start to tell jokes. You can't start to make fun of things until you can stand back from in a certain perspective. That's so. I'm just. That's just occurring to me now that I. I mean, as I'm writing a joke, yeah, I am. Uh, I mean, a lot of my best stuff is from just the very mindfulness of. Ooh, uh, noticing a way that I feel or something something peculiar that I hadn't noticed before, but it's not finished until I then start to think about how an audience is going to perceive me talking about That's that. That's right. And there are certain topics I suspect that are still too too painful, too that you're too close to, that you're not there, ready to, there to are. joke about. And pretty much <laughs> the funny thing is is pretty much any time that there's something like that that I'm like oh this is a lot of times it's not so much that it's painful it'll be like this is just too embarrassing or something yeah. like that to share about myself yeah that's usually a very good indicator that that's exactly what I should be focusing right. on and embarrassment's an easy one compared to pain right 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 and and um I was fascinated in terms of what happened in the country after September 11th right. and how, you know, with uh, Letterman stepping down, he was the first comedian to have a show afterwards. It was about two weeks after 9-11. And there was this question of, is comedy dead? Will right. late-night shows in New York be able to continue? I mean, it was really a, a serious discussion. Yeah, I remember. And this very slow ability to start to laugh again at anything – and then even 
slight uh, jokes, not about 9-11 per se, but some of the things surrounding it. Mm. Um, so, so you analyzed, um, uh, I thought this was so fascinating, you analyzed all these various blogs uh, from before and a immediately after 9-11 right. and, and then uh, afterwards. And it's so funny because it, it, every, every section of your book, it's still like, I can't get it in my head. It's just like these stupid pronouns. <laughs> like, how do they make it? And then you explain it. And it's like, of course, that yeah. does make perfect sense. So, uh, so could you talk about that shift? So um, September 11th was interesting because it was this profound cultural shift. And I wanted to try to figure out how do you tap a cultural shift? Now, traditional social scientists would go out and get questionnaires. Well, who cares about questionnaires? I don't care about how people are thinking about themselves. I'm curious how they are, how, how the culture is shifting. So I was working with um, a couple of students. Um, we were able to get a, a blog site to give us the collected works of about a thousand bloggers. And these bloggers that we randomly selected were people who blogged at high rates. And so we got their, all their blog entries from two months before September 11th to two months after September 11th. And then what we did was we, we were able to analyze them because they wrote on average about every other day. And we had over 70,000 blog entries. And what we can now do is go in and analyze them practically on a day-by-day -day basis. And what we were able to see was how the culture shifted on September 11th and, and, and asked some basic questions. For example, do people feel bad after September 11th? Well, duh, of course they do. And they, you see this big increase in the use of negative emotions. Well, how long do they feel bad? So that's our first question. And what you see in terms of you see this elevation in negative emotions, it takes about 10 days for them to come back down to where they were before September 11th. Okay, what about positive emotions? Do they, is there a reduction in positive emotions after September 11th? Duh, yes there are. But here's the weird thing about positive emotions. There's a big drop immediately at, on September 11th and afterwards. Four days later, people are at baseline. And the, the sixth day, their positive emotions are higher than they had been before September 11th. And they stay elevated for the next two months of our data collection. September 11th, oddly, made people happier. Or at least they use more happy po or positive emotion words like love, care, happy, and so forth mm. than before September 11th. And you kind of think back, and I think a lot of people would have memories of all the flags going up everywhere That's and right. kind of people coming together in, in the community. And it was kind of like the in-group got bigger. That's, that's precisely what happened. And what's so interesting about this is that w we words, we, us, and our, they also increased immediately after September 11th, but they stayed high for the next two months. And I think it's that same issue, that there's this collective sense of the culture. We all felt, felt connected in ways that we usually aren't. And this is one of the interesting things about not just September 11th, but other disasters that I've studied. Over the years, I've studied natural disasters and really horrible things that have happened. But the one unexpected positive 
effect of a horrible experience is it really brings people together. It's, everyone's had this experience. After something terrible, say a, a close friend has died unexpectedly, it brings all the friends together. And over the next several weeks, very often, we feel more connected, more connected to life, more connected to others. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely felt more connected to my family after I after I broke my feet. But that was also because I couldn't care for myself and was forced to go live with my parents for three months. So that tragedy brought us together. Um, Yeah, that that is. uh, I mean, you know, you, you hear that and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that that feeling of togetherness and everything. But but to be able to discern that from from these little words that we're not really even consciously aware are there. Um, so you mentioned uh, ju- just just in an example, you mentioned couples going into uh, therapy. But in your book, you talk about um, a, a lot of um, relationship effects on on language and um, like you, you mentioned various dating profiles mm-hmm. you, like you could possibly run a dating profile through through a computer program and uh, which, which by the way do you have a program uh, available online that people can uh, it's funny you should ask uh, if you r- right now we have a, uh, a site or I've got a site called secretlifeofpronouns.com yep. and on it there are various exercises you can do so really fantastic site absolutely um it, really cool interesting and we're going to be having a much sexier uh, online system that we're developing right now probably in a few months hmm. but uh, the, the idea is is in terms of relationships we've become quite interested in it can you analyze the language of two people in a relationship and figure out its future and I've been working with a number of uh, people including some of my students Modley Ireland uh, Cindy Chung and others where we go through and we have analyzed um, well one of our projects was looking at speed dating speed dating from a social psychologist perspective I love speed dating (laughs) it's fabulous I would never do it but it is so intriguing because we've been able to analyze the language of people in speed date. So imagine you go to a speed dating session. You're told that everything's going to be tape recorded, which it is. And then uh, it, but it's a spe- a, 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 your standard speed date. And you talk to somebody for four minutes. Then you switch partners. You talk to somebody else for four minutes. And you do this. Some The ones we did, people did about eight or ten in, in one session. At the end, people... Uh, have this questionnaire they fill it out and then if you and another person agree that you'd like to see each other we call that a match well what we do is we then go through and we analyze the language and we can get a sense of how closely the two people are matching by looking at their function words are they using pronouns similarly are they using articles similarly prepositions and so forth and what we find is the higher this, their language style matching score, the more likely they are to go on a subsequent date. And here's what so, the, the statistic I love most of all. We do a better job at predicting who's going to go out on a date than the people themselves do. 
That is absolutely amazing. <laughs> I know. Now you're thinking that's, can't, that's not mathematically possible. Yes, it is because very often one person will say, I want to go on a date, and the other person won't. And when that happens, they don't match by and large. In other words, when the two of them both want to do it, they tend to match. Now, we've done another study on young dating couples. These were college students, by and large freshmen, who signed up for an experiment on another purpose. And to be in this study, they had to, they had to be dating somebody, and they had to use instant messaging, or IMs, at least daily for 10 days. And they had to agree to give us their IMs. So we, in a, when they signed up for the study, and when they gave us their the 10 days of IMs, they also filled out a questionnaire about the quality of their relationship. How strong was it? Would, how likely would they be together in several months? Um, and so forth. What we then did is we looked at how much the two people matched in terms of this language matching. Same thing. What we discovered was language style matching predicted how long the the relationship would survive and the effects were quite strong those people who were above average in style matching in terms of their language about 80 percent were still together three months later those who are in the bottom half of the style matching distribution only 50 percent were still together three months later and again we did much 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 better than the people themselves in predicting if the relationship would still be together hmm. so here we can here we have this interesting marker of how two people are connecting because if you and your the person you're dating the person you're interested in are on the same page you tend to look at the world in the same way you're talking about the same topic you are paying attention to each other and if you're paying attention to each other you're more likely to be connected a few months later hmm. um, yeah, yeah I think this is just about where I was ending um where as far as i'd gotten uh in, in your book and you'd started talking about mirror neurons which i got excited about and haven't talked about on the program yet probably don't have time to get into uh this but well it would be, be kind of if you want you think this uh, this possibly has well the, there's a whole literature and i should say it's controversial on mirror neurons yeah. and the idea behind it is is that if i um it, they used to call them monkey see, monkey do neurons. Right, and That's, the idea behind them is is that if I'm watching some somebody in, that I in some way empathize with, and they say make a muscular movement, like they they raise their hand, you might do the same. Many of many people have had this experience when you're watching a football game on television, and you really want the guy to kick the ball just the right way and you feel your foot pushing up a little bit in an interesting way one argument is that this is reflects some kind of mirror neuron process it's it whether or not this really is a mirror neuron or what's driving it it's hard to say but the principle is fairly similar to what we see it's also very similar to nonverbal behavior you know if one person crosses the ar their arms you tend to do the same as well but this is most likely to occur if you are paying attention to another person. The more engaged you are with the, the other person, the more you're paying attention, the more the two of you will mirror each other in nonverbals. Do you think that possibly um, in, in the moment, it, when, you, when you say you can do a better job, uh, or a computer rather, or a con right. can, computer. Do a, <laughs> yeah. can do a better job of, 
of uh, well, actually, that's kind of my question. Uh, a computer can do a better job of of telling whether a couple's going to make it by how much they're matching, and and this couple isn't isn't as accurate as this computer. Do you think an outsider might be? A, I here's why I bring it up. I had a podcast. Um, my my last podcast uh, used to be with my ex girlfriend, who's also a comedian, and we're, we're very good friends. So. I don't mind talking about about her. She's fine with it, but um, but kind of a um, a running theme in our podcast was that listeners would be like, "Wow, these two aren't going to <laughs> last for very long," and part of it was that to be entertaining, you kind of have to be outrageous and everything. But um, but looking back. Uh, I'm thinking, I bet if you took the transcripts of those that, podcasts. And, and it's interesting because when I, after I analyzed the data for our, the first, uh, that instant best, the IM project, where we're looking at young dating couples, and I looked at the ones whose style matching was particularly low and the ones who didn't make it, and I went back and just read them, geez, it was completely obvious that they weren't going to make it. Uh, but what I loved about it is their questionnaires, they didn't see it at all. Mm. And so this is, you know, I think when you're in a relationship, you are just blind to stuff. Mm. I mean, this, and thank, yes. thank God, or, <laughs> thank God, or I'd be out of a job. And so would you. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. And, and so, so now that I'm, now that I'm a single man, I haven't tried the online <laughs> dating stuff yet, but, um, but, but are there, are there any things people can use, like the the best function words to talk about my hog? <laughs> <laughs> and see, well, this this is what probably so, just steer clear yeah, of that. Yeah. Is what any lady listener is saying. <laughs> and and it, it's also interesting. It makes it even with this knowledge that matching function words predicts how long a relationship will right. last or whether you're going to date. It's impossible to, to manipulate your function words to match the other person's. If mm. you're doing that, you're screwed because right. you're you're sitting there. Okay, okay, okay. Just use an article. I got to read. Okay, a the. I mean, right. It's right. just not doable. But do you think there uh, there is something happening happening on a non conscious level? Say say you are writing a very important um, email or a performance review or or something like that i think you mentioned um um, giving referrals or letters yeah letters of recommendations and well it's it is interesting when i write or i do an email sometimes and it's a sensitive one i do go back and i do pay more attention and i will go back and i'll look at the articles and prepositions and so forth but it's getting at the tone of an email so Sometimes I'll go back and I'll look at it, and and I'll look at it and realize, wow, I'm sounding kind of like an asshole here. I am. I'm not being self-reflective. I'm really pointing my finger at them, as opposed to trying to get the two of us to work together. And so, the I use the pronouns and and other function words as essentially markers to me how I'm probably coming across, how I'm probably feeling, and that's not what I want to do. And so very often I will try to psychologically think, what is my tone here? What, what do I mm. really feel? And in a weird kind of way, by looking at these words, I'm using that as kind of a gauge. 
Right. Well, I, I, a big part of the reason why I asked was because uh, I'm fiddling with my phone here quick to see if, um, if uh, Lala Smith on Twitter, she, she had apparently re she heard me uh, talk about you on radio today and read your book and was excited I was um, interviewing you. And, uh, and she was, one of the questions she wanted me to ask was how, how this has affected uh, your life. So, so you can take some of the, obviously you can't listen to someone and um, read their mind because right, there's right. no way you can consciously uh, focus on all these little function words and uh, pronouns, but, but possibly when sending out a very important letter or an email or something That's like right. that, you, you can exercise a little bit of control to uh, present yourself in, That's right. in the way that you would like to be presented. That's right. And there are times when somebody says something that just because I think I study this, I feel like I've almost been slapped because they're using language in a way that doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, there's something the matter. So, for example, over the years, I've done a lot of work on lie detection. And I wanted to talk a lot about this. If, if I, and, and the idea here is, is that when people are telling the truth, Again, they use I words more. They're more self-reflective. They're more complex. So they tell you what they did do, but also what they did not do. And if you're lying, you're trying to kind of emotionally distance yourself from your story, and you can't be too complicated because um, you, you can say, you can lie saying, well, you did this and you did this and you did that. But it's almost impossible for a person to say, I did this, but I didn't do that, because you didn't do any of it. So sometimes I'll see something on television. There's somebody who's a suspect, and the news media has nabbed the person, and, and they'll ask some question. Uh, did you, uh, why, why didn't you talk to this person who, who, says that they, blah, 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 and the person might say something uh, as opposed to saying, I didn't, I didn't talk to the person. They'll say, um, they'll put it in a way where they don't use the word I. That they're really, they're evading the question or they're pushing the question in some way that doesn't make sense, which tells me they're obviously guilty. I think, I think you used a funny example of... Uh, of of Clinton um, during the oh, Monica Lewinsky, where <laughs> this had never occurred to me before, where someone would say, "I would like to state, blah." Exactly. That's right. And so they're not. Uh, I never had sex with this woman, or whatever it might be. So they're actually not lying. That's right. Because they are stating that. That's right. I want to Even make though it... what they're saying, stating is a lie. That's right. But, but what they're saying is, I want to state, and they do want to state that. So that's, that that's is right. the truth. That's right. This is called, this is called a performative. And the, <laughs> listen for these. These are fabulous. These. So if anybody says, uh, I want to be perfectly clear, or listen to what I'm saying, or anything where it, the first part of the sentence is something that is, it, it, it's, it, uh, I, I want to be clear that such and such, it, it's, uh, here, here's an, an example. Uh, I want you to know I'm holding a shovel right now. 
<laughs> we're out there in Radio Land. You don't know if I'm holding a shovel or not, but did what I, what I said, was it true? Actually, it is true. It's absolutely true. Because I said, I want you to know that I'm holding a shovel. I don't have a shovel within a mile of me right now, but I, I want you to know that I am. So in a weird <laughs> kind of way, I'm telling the truth, but I'm being completely deceptive. And, and when somebody is lying to you, even though they're not consciously thinking, okay, I'm going to use a performative, it's almost as though their brain makes, sets it up so they're protected. I want you to know I would never do such a thing. Well, you, I almost can guarantee you that's totally untrustworthy. Well, I want you to know that I <laughs> sincerely meant to finish your book. But I, <laughs> I just simply didn't have time. I need you to know that. Um, uh, so we're almost at the hour mark. Um, before, uh, let's maybe cover one one more brief topic or or something uh, but but before we do um could you please what is the uh, charity of the week that you would like to mention so mine is a weird kind of charity which is uh giving to a, a university and of course i would like to have you give to the department of psychology at the university of texas it's not a traditional charity but funding for graduate training is at a is at a low and we have some of the best uh, graduate students in the world around here and helping it, you should give to the University of Texas Psychology Department you could give to other places but um, they're, they're not as good as this place yeah I need you to know that they are not as good as this place um, alright that's wonderful and I'll, I'll uh, provide a link for that um, and so uh, before before we wrap up, because I, I really liked the the lie detection stuff, and and if if there is like a, because you you have a rather um, neat life, whereas you you just you see this like a news story, and then you can get the transcript from something, and and it's all it. every, there, data and, is everywhere, and so. Uh, well, if you have a different example you'd like to share, um, that's that's great. But I was um, I was curious if you wanted to talk about because uh, I had just gotten to the part about Nixon. And I thought that was um, that was pretty interesting. Nixon's uh, well, that one kind of goes <laughs> over what we talked about in terms of yeah, relative yeah. status. I have one other one that's I think. Okay. Uh, oh wow, there's two really sexy projects that we have just finished. The one that we just you can do them both if you want to, or or just pick one. Either way, well, the one that we I have time. the one we just finished is one that looks at kind of um, linguistic fingerprinting, and it's based off of an idea that you can put these function words together in an interesting way that essentially captures how either logical and formal their language is versus at the other end of the spectrum how here and now narrative their language is and language goes along this dimension from high versus low and we call it categorical thinking uh, and let's just call it let's, for our, our let's say formal thinking it's a really stable number and what we're able to do is we can we can go through and analyze any text I was contacted a couple of years ago by a group at uh, USC, 
and they were interested in a, a play that had been discovered at about 100 years after Shakespeare died that was claimed to have been written by Shakespeare. And the question was, did Shakespeare write it? And there were, there were two other suspects as possible authors. And I should say, the name of this play is called Double Falsehood. And there have been kind of a... Uh, literary scholars have been fighting over this for 200 years, 300 years. In any case, we were able to apply this, some of our uh, analytic methods to this, this particular play, and we've now come to the conclusion, and it was just published in a top journal, uh, showing that this clearly was written by Shakespeare. In other words, the methods that we've been using to identify kidnappers or through, say, ransom notes or things that we have used for just uh, identifying personality, we can do a pretty good job at analyzing both Shakespeare's personality but also distinguishing him from other potential authors at the time. And this is just one more way to start thinking about language that it can, it, it has, it, there are so many things we could learn about people through their language use. And I trust some people out there are thinking, this is just creepy as it can be. And it is creepy. I mean, the reality is, is this, like every other thing that modern science is moving, you know, in the, w in the ways we're moving, we're getting a good sense of how to understand how we think. And I think it has tremendous positive value. It could be misused, of course. But by and large, this gives us a way to start thinking about how can we train people to think? How we can train people to learn? How can we train people to uh, understand text better and also, most importantly, learn to understand themselves better? Hmm. That's so interesting because eventually the, it, it, you know, I, I guess the paranoid side of it is, is if, if, um, if the government's reading our emails or whatever and, and putting this all, uh, running this through an algorithm and, and putting these fingerprints together... Then right. I can I can't kidnap people anymore. And oh, I know. And these, what are you going to do write, then? Write, write <laughs> these right. ransom notes because they're going to be like, see, he used the same function words talking about his hog on this online dating site, and, and they're going right. to they're going to know it was me. That's right. Or uh, or maybe you're Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps you know there isn't there some other conspiracy about theory about um, about. Shakespeare being um, uh, being hired to uh, write the King James Bible or something like that, or to rewrite it. I'm I, sure there is. It, it, it <laughs> might be a little foggy. Well, I'm just thinking it, the Bible might be an interesting one because all the books are supposed to be by different authors. That's right, and we and we've played with that some as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Did yeah. he find anything? Or? Well, we were only looking at the, the eight letters of Paul, St. Paul, because there have been a lot of discussions where, were these all written by the same person? Hmm. And it's clear four of them, it's reasonably clear to me that four of them really were written by the same person, probably really Paul. And keep in mind, these are in translations of translations. Right. And there's two of them that there's no way they're written by the same person. Hmm. And then there is two others that were kind of in the, in the middle. But clearly four were written by the same person, two... No way were they written by the same person. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for you being a, just, uh, a guest on the show. James Pennebaker, everybody. Um, and make sure and get his book, The, the um, 
uh, the hidden lives of pronouns. Secret lives of pronouns. Uh, a classic. Secret lives. A classic. The secret lives of pronouns. I've 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 typed that into my computer roughly forty times, doing <laughs> some of the various uh, things since since I've been doing it. I still screwed up the name. Anyway, secret lives of Se- pronouns. Secret life. Secret life. The secret <laughs> life of pronouns. Uh, no, of adverbs. No, that's right. It's pronouns. <laughs> Uh, that's fun. I, sometimes I blow it just right at the end there. Uh, but thank you so much for being a guest on the show, and thank you all for listening. Thank you guys for listening. Next week on the program, my good friend Peter McGraw, author of The Humor Code, humor researcher Peter McGraw is back on the program, this time with his Ph.D. student, Aaron Percival. And um, we talk about it's kind of a goofy one. It's a it's a fun one. We had a lot of jokes. It's pretty loose, and I think you guys are really gonna like it. So make sure and tune in next week. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. (laughs) 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I, I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my... <laughs> <laughs>